The Center at Mariondale is a spiritual retreat house, conveniently located just 30 miles north of New York City on 61 acres above the banks of the Hudson River. Mariondale offers retreats and programs in spirituality, contemplative practices, social and environmental justice, interfaith dialogue, and the arts. The Center at Mariondale is a sponsored ministry of the Dominican Sisters of Hope. Learn more at mariondale.org. That's M-A-R-I-A-N-D-A-L-E dot org. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's great to be with you, Ashley. Good to have you here. I'm feeling really good. I had a great weekend. I was in Ohio surprising my grandfather, who turned 80 this weekend. Oh, that's wonderful. So he listens to the show. So I want to uh, give a special shout out to him and happy birthday, Grandpa. So that's that's happening. Also, big sports day. Unfortunately, we've not fixed Jesuitical's recording times to stop coinciding with Liverpool Football Club's matches, but uh, they're playing right now. And then my Cavs are in the hole right now, uh, but they're playing the New York Knicks tonight. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. You got a lot going on. There's a lot going on in my brain. I know I've been telling people at work that I'm busy with projects, but right. it's really been all of that. All right. Well, let's concentrate on the show for today. We have a good one coming for you. We are talking to our new boss, uh, Father Sam Sawyer. That, well, he's been my boss for oh, that's true. a while. I've worked for Sam basically since I started in America. Um, but Sam, yeah, took over as editor-in-chief uh, in December of 2022. Um, and he's overseen quite a few big stories in just the few short months that he's been at the helm at America. Yeah, the death of a pope, the 10th anniversary of another pope, a lot of Vatican intrigue. But he's also made time to write his own story and kind of give his manifesto for how he sees American media transforming and going forward under his leadership. Yeah, and Sam has a unique vocation story in that he was a software developer before he became a Jesuit. And so he and I have worked together on the digital team here at America. And people are always surprised when we go into meetings with outside vendors that the the priest in the room is the Knows most knowledgeable <laughs> yeah about technology and so he's got some really interesting thoughts on uh the church and its own interactions with the digital world and then in signs of the times we have some news about the synod pope francis has officially given women the right to vote in that meeting in october but he may have given them the vote he lost his blue check mark on twitter yep <laughs> so and dig into that yep and then there are some updates in catholic anglican relations so stay tuned for those but before all that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So I love to dabble in video games from time to time. I always have grew up with them. Um, but I've never really seen a video game that interacts with my Catholic faith at all. Well, now you can, because the Acutus game allows you to have fun while exploring your Catholic faith, going back in time through more than 2,000 years of amazing history. Yes, the Acutis game is coming soon. Join Blessed Carlo Acutis on epic adventures, traveling through time to explore the lives of centuries of Catholic saints, amazing holy sites, and the messages of biblical stories. This new game was created in honor of Blessed Carlo Acutis, a young computer programmer who documented Eucharistic miracles in a website that he built before his death from leukemia in 2006. Yeah, talking to Sam later about digital strategy in the church, uh, Blessed Carlo Acutis would have been all over that if he were alive today. So you're going to want to visit www.acutisgame.com to see an exciting preview and pre-order the game. Everyone's talking about the incredible quality of the characters, scenery, music, and gaming activities. 
The Acutus Game is built by Faith Games, Inc., a company founded by Catholic technology experts to build gaming, virtual reality, and other multimedia content for Catholics. It's perfect for all ages and is ideal for individual game players and for religious education programs. Again, please visit www.acutusgame.com to pre-order. The game's going to be out for PCs in October, and it's the perfect gift for Easter or Christmas. So get the Acutus Game today. And what's on tap this week, Zach? So on tap this week is a nice Roman drink. We're uh, having a Negroni uh, because this is one of Father Sawyer's favorite drinks. So, um, and it, you know what? It just is a nice day when we can make a drink with all of the ingredients that we already have on the Jesuitical bar cart. Um, so this is uh, gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth, uh, which we keep in the fridge, obviously. Uh, but we already had all that. So saved us a trip to the liquor store. All right. Cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Big story this week about the Synod on Synodality coming up. Pope Francis has given, for the first time in history, women the right to vote at a Synod of Bishops. And not just women, but lay people as well. Yeah, so the Vatican announced today, recording on April 26th, that Pope Francis had extended participation in the synod to non-bishops, including priests, deacons, consecrated men and women, and laymen and lay women. Uh, so Cardinal Jean-Claude Ulrich, the realtor of the uh, synod, said today that about 21% of the synod's 370 members uh, would not be bishops and that all those people would have the right to vote. Yeah, and about half of that group is going to be women, so 10%. So for some context, the Synod of Bishops was uh, reinstituted after Vatican II, um, but since then, really only men have been able to vote. And for the most part, those have been cardinals and bishops. Now, there have always been 10 priests that have represented religious orders who could vote, but in 2015, a religious brother was given a vote at the Synod on the Family, which raised a lot of questions like, okay, a religious brother has technically the same status as a lay woman. So why wouldn't we open the door to other lay people or women religious to do this? And today's news uh, answers that question. Yeah. So that's exactly what Pope Francis did. So in past synods, there were these non-voting auditors that would you know, give expertise and advice to the bishops. But now those auditors have been replaced by a group of 70 non-bishop members who have the right to vote and they represent various groupings of the faithful people of God. And so these representatives- I have a question. Yeah. I have a question. How is someone picked to be one of these representatives? Good question. I was about to get to that. Oh. <laughs> Bishops conferences from around the world, as, as well as um, kind of like the Eastern Eastern Catholic equivalent of bishops conferences, are going to be nominating people from their from their countries and regions. Uh, so they're going to give a list of 140 potential nominees to Pope Francis, and then Pope Francis will pick 70 of those. Sorry, let me be more specific. Where do I submit my headshot? <laughs> that is a great. <laughs> it's, bishops, it's, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Um, so what was your reaction to this news? Obviously, I was excited and happy about it. But I, I do feel like, as you mentioned earlier, that it was like kind of inevitable since the door was open to a lay brother voting in 2015. It was like there was no logical explanation that the for church could women. give for excluding yeah. women anymore. And Pope Francis has talked about it so frequently, like finding those places that aren't aren't women's ordination, but are places where you can put some space between power and authority and, you know, the clerical state. And so this just seems like such a perfect place to do it because one, 
it's not like the Senate has any like decision making power anyway. So it's not right. like it has any binding power over the church or binding authority over the church. So the idea of excluding women from what is ultimately a consultative body just like made no sense. Right. And to that point, like it's a big step, but as I mentioned, it's still gonna be like ten percent of <laughs> like forty women. Yeah. Like ten percent <laughs> of the body is gonna be women, even though they're fifty percent of the population. Yeah. Still obviously room for improvement there, I think. The, my other take is that I am officially at my capacity for news about the Synod. I would like the Synod to just be underway. Um, there's been so much talk about it, so much confusion about it, so much excitement about it from some people. I'm ready to just do the darn thing. Um, I'm, it, it sounds like it's going to be really exciting. I think we're, there's going to be a lot of important conversations that are going to be had. Um, so I'm on the edge of my seat for the rest of the summer, just waiting for this <laughs> thing to start. I, I seriously mean that. It's going to be a really big fall. Uh, so stay tuned if you are a Vatican watcher. What's our next story, Ashley? So last Thursday, April 20th, millions of Twitter users, including me and Zach, lost our beloved blue check marks. I'd like to take a moment for the world's tiniest violin for <laughs> Ashley and I. Yeah, I don't know how we ever got one to begin with. Nope, snuck in under the radar. But we were not the only ones to lose our verified status. Pope Francis also lost his blue check mark on all of his various language Twitter profiles. <laughs> Which, yeah, so funny. I don't know. So this was surprising because... Other heads of state were allowed to keep their checkmark or a different checkmark, and Pope Francis was just left checkmarkless at all. And so obviously there's some religious illiteracy at Twitter, which is, I would say, not all that surprising. No. So, But now he does have, he has the gray checkmark, which uh, indicates that he's a head of state, right? Correct. He does have that now. But, but there was a short period where he was just- It could have been anybody. Joe Schmo <laughs> tweeting from the Pontifex account. But there were a ton of very funny tweets. Uh, Twitter's still really good for, for humor in, yeah. in real time. Yeah, so one of them from uh, Nico Stratus said, when blue smoke emerges from the Vatican, that's when we know they verified a new pope. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Jim R. Lynch said, counting down the days until Mass on Sunday has a second collection for the Pope's Twitter verification fund, which was, I thought that was very, yeah. very good. What's our next story, Ashley? Yeah, we have a couple interesting stories out of the Vatican recently about Catholic-Anglican relations. So first is a pretty feel-good story. Uh, we learned last Wednesday that Pope Francis has given relics of the True Cross to King Charles III as a gift for his coronation, which is taking place at Westminster Abbey on May 6th. Yeah, so there are two small wooden shards that are going to be incorporated into the newly made Cross of Wales, which will be carried at the head of the procession for the coronation in the Abbey. And I've always just found it funny that if you have to call something the true cross, it, I'm already just a little skeptical personally. Like <laughs> trying a little too hard. If you weren't, if you're not just calling it Jesus's cross, if it, if the whole if it's known as the true cross, yeah, um, you know. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have to take that on on belief. I don't think I pronounced that in the creed, but I'm... in the church's defense, I'm sure it's because there have been a bunch of fraudsters over the centuries who have been peddling fake crosses. Yeah, but now you can just say this is. Oh yeah, this is a piece of the, the true cross. <laughs> um, so, so this was a really good ecumenical gesture on Pope Francis's part, um, but. King Charles is also adding to that by after the coronation, this cross will be shared by Anglican and Catholic churches in Wales. So continuing in that ecumenical spirit. Yeah. And, you know, I w wasn't sure if this was ecumenical or a flex on the Catholic church's part to be like, 
we have the true cross and we are the true religion. You are not. Um, it is a way of like a, a backhanded compliment, but it, it does not seem that way. But that's not the only story in Vatican Anglican relations this week. Yeah, so this nice ecumenical gesture was quickly followed by um, a bit of a mix-up between the Catholic and Anglican Church when 50 Anglican priests and their bishops celebrated an Anglican liturgy at the main altar of Rome's Basilica of St. John Lateran. This is also known as the See of the Bishop of Rome, a.k.a. Pope Francis. So Pope Francis's church, uh, these they they had a, a liturgy there, which was a result of a bit of a miscommunication. Yeah, the vicar of the basilica expressed deep regret for the mix-up, saying there was a breakdown in communication, which is easy to understand. Uh, Anglicans, I think many people have walked into an Anglican liturgy and went, this looks a little Catholic, mm-hmm. but kind of off. Yeah, uh, and this think- was a specifically Anglo-Catholic group, which is a bit of a... Uh, a term I'm not that familiar with, but they are they are Anglicans, but with a, I would say, an affinity for the Catholic Church. Yeah, and so this you know raised a lot of questions with like one, how does this happen? Two, is this allowed? And I actually learned a few things. The Vatican does have some norms and directives for how to use uh, shared spaces and ecumenical relations, and it you know Catholic churches are typically reserved for Catholic liturgy, but it, it's not actually prohibited. Right. So there are norms that if other Christians do not have uh, the proper place or liturgical objects for their liturgy, that they can be welcomed into a Catholic church. Which I I, I will say, I didn't even, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't know that was really even an option. I thought there was sort of this just like blanket rule Mm -hmm. against really doing this. I didn't realize there were some like sort of nuanced and mm-hmm. uh, directives for making making this happen. I think it seems like the real issue is is that there was just not clear communication. In Rome, there's not clear communication really ever anywhere at any time. So I can totally see how this happened. But I appreciated that the Vatican official was not sort of like freaking out about this, mm-hmm. like it was a major deal. Because something someone clarified that I didn't realize is that, you know, it was pretty, it was roped off. It's not like there could have been a Catholic uh, pilgrim or tourist that would have stumbled like in stumbled and- in and mistaken it for Catholic mass that it, it was set apart, which I think that makes sense for that to be an important thing. And so I don't know, it's it's not the end of the world seemed to be the Vatican's take. And that's also my take. And now stick around for our conversation with Father Sam Sawyer. Joining us in studio is Father Sam Sawyer. Sam is the new Editor-in-Chief of American Media. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sam. Thanks. Good to be back. It's so good to have you back on the show, this time in your brand new role. But one thing that hasn't changed is your love of coffee and level of snobbery that you and I share in coffee. This is one of the ways Zach and I first bonded uh, early in our careers in America. Yes. um, Our coffee breaks would be like 10 minutes of making the coffee, and then we would go right back to the grind. Um, But could you tell us a little bit about what we are drinking today? Sure. So we are drinking freshly made AeroPress coffee from freshly ground and recently roasted beans. Uh, which is the ideal way to have coffee if you have the option. I was looking at the bag and it said Samuel on it. Was this custom made for you? <laughs> well, not, not quite custom made, but I do. I subscribe to a, I have a coffee roasting subscription. So every month I get a bag of recently roasted coffee and they do print my name on it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I think that's uh, that's it. We can wrap now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I feel like, and of course you guys are free to edit this out, but I, I think it's also worth saying why we're drinking coffee rather than a more traditional Jesuitical drink. Yes. It's 11 a.m. <laughs> yes. 
we're, we're recording at 11 in the morning. Not that that's uh, always stuff. I, I did I did go by Sam's office. I was like, oh, you should think about what cocktail you want to have on Jesuitical. And it pointed out to me that it would be not ideal to have a mezcal Negroni at 11 a.m. But but that was my that was my first hope. So uh, if you are listening to this podcast later in the afternoon or early evening and would like a mezcal Negroni, I do recommend it highly. Amen. So Sam, we both worked with you for going on eight, eight nine, years. eight years now. Um, but not everyone has gotten a chance to hear your vocation story a little bit. So I'm wondering if you could just take us back to where you were sort of like coming out of college and discerning what you wanted to do for the rest of your life. Sure. Coming out of college. So I had gone to Boston College, uh, a Jesuit school. And one of the reasons uh, that I ended up at Boston College was because my mom worked at a Jesuit university, the University of Scranton, which is how I had gotten introduced to the Jesuits, went to a Jesuit high school. Um, and there was also a tuition remission exchange program so that Not I was so able bad. to take those privileges with me and and go to BC um, mostly for free. So I was already deep in Jesuit education and and valued uh, the the spirit of Jesuit education, that way of approaching God. So those were things I was committed to. But I had an experience in my freshman year at BC. I was at a talk given by a great Jesuit, uh, Father Howard Gray, since gone to God, who was talking about Ignatian spirituality in higher education. And he described uh, Ignatius and the First Companions as coming together around recognizing that they shared a desire to help souls. And the feeling at that moment was as if God had tapped me on the shoulder to whisper, that's the name for what you want to do, um, which terrified me. So that was April of my freshman year. And I spent the next like six months trying to pretend it hadn't happened. Um, but at the same time, I was starting to daydream about what I might do and what my life might be like as a Jesuit. And I knew enough about the story of Ignatius to know that that was clearly a sign that there was something going on here. And then at the beginning of my sophomore year at BC, I was invited to make the spiritual exercises in 19th annotation form, so spread out over a whole year instead of 30 days all at once. When I was invited to do that, it was, again, clear to me that this was uh, you know, part of God saying, this isn't going to go away, this idea of vocation, until you do something with it. So did you enter right out of college then? Or? No. So what... What was interesting is that actually my experience of doing the exercises in my sophomore year turned out to be much less about vocational discernment directly and much more about learning how to pray and learning what it meant for me as an adult to be Christian and be committed to being a Catholic. Um, and so while it confirmed the need to discern, it didn't answer the discernment question for me right away. So out of college, I graduated. I spent a year working as a volunteer middle school teacher at a Jesuit middle school in Baltimore, which was a good year, but tough in many ways. And I came back from that, moved back up to Boston, where I had a, a set of software engineering jobs after that. So I was about three years out of college when I finally said, you know, the next step in discernment really is novitiate, and then uh, got in touch with the vocations director um, and started working through the formal process to apply to the novitiate and entered in 2004. I want to come back to what it's like to go from having a a, a career, a short career, but a career nonetheless, and and joining joining the Jesuits. But going back to kind of college and those years afterwards, I imagine there weren't that many people around you discerning religious life, or Maybe that's not true. What was we are, we're in a time of declining vocation, so it's not like there are huge numbers of men looking to go into the Jesuits. So was this 
a lonely experience or did you feel like you had people you could talk to about it? No, it it actually wasn't lonely at all. Credit to being at a place like Boston College where a lot of people were taking religious questions seriously. So one of my very closest friends, when I finally, you know, sort of mid-sophomore, I think it was middle fall semester, sophomore year, decided this wasn't going away and I needed to actually start talking to people about it, I discovered that one of my very closest friends, who is Episcopalian, had started discerning about the Episcopal priesthood for himself. So he and Andrew and I, Andrew and I sort of walked the journey of our discernment uh, together through the rest of college, which was wonderful. I also had uh, other classmates who, well, in fact, Jeremy Zippel, who used to work here with us, another Jesuit priest, was a classmate of mine at BC. We were in the same in the same class and same scholarship program. Um, and so Jeremy and I, summer after our sophomore year, were on a, a BC-sponsored trip in Europe. We got to go to Rome and we stood in Ignatius's rooms together. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I, I was actually very lucky in having companions along the way, both explicitly discerning specifically religious life, priesthood, Jesuit vocation, but also a number of great people for whom their faith was intensely meaningful to them and were approaching not just you know, sort of the vocational marriage or priesthood or religious life question, but also the question of what did they want their career to be, who did they want to be in the world, very much out of their their faith commitments. So yeah, no, it didn't feel lonely at all, actually. I had a very similar experience in college where I felt like, you know, as you said it, like it's not like everyone was like signing up and constantly going on come and see retreats or anything all the time, but everybody was like took the question of what do I want to do with my life pretty seriously and we're willing to talk about it. Do you think that's a must have in your like faith journey or in spiritual life, particularly as a young person who's trying to figure out what they want to do? Um, and how do you, what's your advice to someone who maybe has a hard time, who feels pretty alone in answering those questions? So I don't think I'd want to say it's a must have because I think certainly God can work through other circumstances as well. But I would say, and, and I've said uh, especially to young men who are discerning uh, the possibility of a Jesuit vocation, that it's important to to learn and to appreciate how joyful this potential vocation can be. And one of the reasons it's joyful is because it's lived in community. It's lived together with other people who are seeking the same God and trying to serve the same mission. And there's immense joy in that. And that's also true about, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's wonderful to work at a place like America, because we have a group of people gathered together who are trying to serve the same mission and love the same God and help introduce other people to the God who loves them. Um, And those experiences are not they're not accidental, right? Those are not just nice to have on on top of the rest of what uh, what religious faith and what religious vocation means. They're actually part of the nature of the vocation itself to be sharing this life together in community. I mean, ultimately, that's what the communion of the church means um, that we're called to. And so there'll be times when that maybe waxes or wanes and people for whom uh, that aspect of the experience is more important maybe than it might be for some others. But I would encourage anyone who's feeling lonely that way, you know, That's it's a good reason to seek out community in the form of a parish. It's a good reason to seek out community uh, maybe in a faith-sharing group or people with whom you can pray, but also to offer that community to others because that's one of the major ways that God wants us to experience our relationship with God. So. In this day and age, you would probably not be considered a late vocation. You might be considered. I entered on the at earlier. twenty-five, so yes, yeah. No. But in the two thousand-year scope of the church, most people who were well—I don't know the whole history—but at least up until 
you know, the 1960s. Most people were jo- joining the priesthood. Peter, Paul, Ignatius, Francis, <laughs> Savior, yeah. all, all the late vocations. Yeah. <laughs> but like 25 is like the canonically the earliest you could get ordained too, right? So, well, right? Yeah, but I also wasn't ordained then. I mean, I entered and then well, spent it, 10 it, years in formation. Well, exactly. But you could, right. but I, Ashley's- yeah. So what I'm getting oh, at yeah, is for, for most of, for late part of the church history, at least, you know, you had a lot of people joining seminaries as teenagers. They- were joining before they had dated or had careers or any of that. So I'm curious um, what your experience of having some of that life experience as you joined religious life, what what gifts did that bring or what were there any challenges that came with that? So I was actually, I think I was right around the median of my entering class in novitiate. Uh, so we had a couple guys who, you know, were entering after decades long careers out in the world and and also guys entering right out of college. Um, and so I was kind of in the middle of that. And I think certainly the as I've gone on, the experience of, you know, just the basics of having a job, paying rent, uh, worrying about the practicalities of life, it's a helpful reality check because there's there are ways in which religious life where, you know, everything is provided in common can disconnect you from that kind of stuff. I mean, it's been a while since I've had to file taxes, but at least I did have to file taxes once upon a time, that sort of thing. But maybe more important than the having that experience is the reminder that I need to be attentive to that experience in other people and listen to them and remember that the experience I'm having now uh, as a religious who lives in community and whose needs are provided for differently is is not default or, you know, is not the the normal widespread experience for everybody. As employees in America, we appreciate that you realize <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I do know what a pay stub looks like. <laughs> uh, I don't because they come electronically now. But <laughs> one of the things I love about these conversations is I always somewhere in them there's always a chance for me to feel old. Yeah, which is awesome. Speaking of, uh, as you know, we mentioned earlier, um, worked together for a long time now, and one of the things you really like headed up, and I've gotten to work with you on, is sort of leading America's digital transformation. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you about sort of technology in the church, digital strategy in the church, um, because honestly, it feels like a lot of it is pretty bad. Um, and I, one of the reasons I felt fulfilled at America is this like willingness to um, experiment and, you know, char- charge into the deep and, you know, figure out what's going on. But why do you think the church is so like allergic to uh, technology developing at a rapid pace right now? Honestly, I think a lot of it is resource constraint. I think that so many things in the church are done you know, on a shoestring and duct tape and minimal budgets that uh, the- And older volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, right. And volunteer labor in yeah. many, many ways, mm-hmm. um, but but often older volunteers, people who have, you know, time. Who, yeah. who have retired and, and now have more time. So I think a lot of the churches struggle to meet the digital revolution on its own terms is just that a lot of that requires investments, both of financial resources and time, that the church often doesn't have available. Uh, but I also think there's, you know, the church's own sense of its tradition could sometimes encourage us to say, like, you know, this is the way we do it. This is the way we've always done it. And of course, we know once we take a look at the history of the church that there is no completely monolithic, this is the way we've always done it. What there is is a continuous development. And the continuity is important. We want to value the continuity. But there's also a way of saying, okay, how do we embrace and engage with what's new? And I think that's maybe a place where we haven't had quite enough 
passion across the church for uh, for realizing how quickly digital forms of communication or digitally mediated communication, let's say it that way, has become the sort of the universal solvent, the way we encounter everything, at least at first glance. Yeah, and I don't want, I don't think we should be too harsh on the church because yeah, there are there are individuals certainly yeah. <laughs> like who have embraced right. the internet and are reaching huge audiences like Bishop Robert Barron and Father Mike Schmitz and you know in our modest way Jesuitical <laughs> um, right so, our own Father Jim Martin there, yeah. there are certainly plenty of examples of people who have. Um, who have hit the ground running and been, you know, sort of in the early adopter phase of various. I mean, I'll say early adopter about social media is another way that I feel yeah. old now. But um, you know, people who have in, who have engaged deeply with that. But I think I, th- I think it is true though that institutionally well, the church has struggled to engage. Touch point is the parish, and I would say the parish is the place where this has not really happened. Like. You know, if you, I mean, masstimes.org is a great app. I use it all the time, but but most parish websites and digital outreach, like, is not is not yeah. where. No, and, you and that's where I would be. say you know resource constraint uh, in a lot of ways. One of the reasons maybe that that parishes didn't feel the need to do this earlier is because they already had communities that were present and engaging with each other in more concrete real world ways, and so it didn't have to be as digital. Right, didn't didn't have to be digitally mediated, but as more and more people put more and more of their lives uh, into the digital space and start off there, the fact that parishes haven't gotten there to meet them now is becoming more of a challenge. I've said this to to older Jesuits sometimes. Who I, I remember, I once got critiqued while sitting in the chapel. Uh, somebody walked up behind me. I had my phone out. I was like. Can't you put that thing away even for one minute? And I, I looked <laughs> oh up at him and I said, "Father, I'm actually praying evening prayer." My breviary was on my phone. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> um, no, and but I mean, I I understand the disconnect there. One of the yeah. things, though, that's been really clear to me, especially from my experience along with some of my um, my Jesuit peers of starting the Jesuit Post, which I worked on before coming to America, and one of the reasons I wound up in America as a ministry. Our ability to connect with each other through technological means, whether it was just talking to each other on FaceTime or co-editing a Google Doc or something, that has actually become hugely critically important to our friendships. Um, that is real communion that is digitally mediated. And I think that's that's what I hope um, parishes and other spaces in the church would would see as a possibility and become zealous about fostering. Are you a person in your 20s or 30s who is looking to deepen your faith, grow as a leader, explore your vocation, all while being a part of a welcoming, inclusive community of your peers? You might consider becoming a Contemplative Leader in Action, or CLA. This is an Ignatian leadership program for young adults sponsored by the Office of Ignatian Spirituality and Ignatian Young Adult Ministries. Ignatian leadership invites us to act in a way that reflects our beliefs, affirms our purpose, and promotes justice. CLA is an 18-month program with cohorts that gather twice per month to explore themes like relational leadership, leading in complexity, and accountable leadership. The experience begins and ends with a retreat with days of reflection along the way. New cohorts are forming now. Be a contemplative leader in action. Apply today at contemplativeleaders.org. The application deadline is May 1st, 2023. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a a dimension here that I feel like I want your help teasing out where I, I feel like a lot of this is the, the rate at which technology advances too is almost like exponential, right? And so for institutions like the church with this very long tradition in history, if we think about just mass media communication in the 1950s, it was, you know, radio and television mm-hmm. and, and that was it. And now it's like the church could afford to be like, all right, we're just going to wait like three years at the dawn of each of these things to see how it shakes out and do a discernment about the best way to engage. And now it's like it, with AI on, on you know, the verge of really rapidly accelerating mm-hmm. things, it, it, the church in some ways has to like act and discern all at the same time, which I feel like the Jesuits have a lot of practice in, but it, it presents a new problem, I think, for b- both society and the church. So I would agree with most of that, except for the maybe the new problem part. I think this is mm-hmm. a, a problem the church has encountered uh, over and over again. Although maybe the the magnitude of like the pace is has accelerated to a different order of magnitude now. There's a sense in which I think that the church's habit of going slow can be helpful, mm-hmm. both because it gives us you know the time to to get closer to really understanding what we're doing. But it also means we occasionally, you know, we, we miss fads that are only flashes in the pan. So like we didn't develop a giant, uh, you know, facts-based ministry in the eighties, which <laughs> is probably good because now we don't have to spin one down. Yeah. Um, now there are other things where like clearly the internet is not a passing fad. Right. And so that kind of engagement. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think the church does move slower. I think that impatience with the church moving slower is, is very natural, normal. I think it's part of the the process by which uh, the church grapples with these things as well, is that some people want to go slower, some people want to go faster, and somewhere in the middle, we, we find maybe not a happy medium, but at least a medium. Uh, but I think, yeah, the challenging name of the pace is accelerating, how do we discern faster? I don't think the the answer necessarily is how do we figure out how to sort of run discernment faster because there's a sense in which discernment takes the time it's going to take. I think the actual challenge that the pace poses to us is that we're going to have to adapt more often, right? So that hmm. the discernment, I would say, maybe is more continuous. And and we're always having to look at, okay, we, we've discerned in response to this change, but then it changed again, so we have to keep discerning. And while we're discerning, it's going to change again, so we have to keep discerning. And so if our habit is to look for here is you know the fundamental principle that's going to solve this forever, we're unlikely to get that with respect to the use of these new technologies. And we have to learn how to be comfortable with the principle is something we are tracking over time rather than finding and fixing in stone. And humans are fantastically adaptable. But human nature. So I want to 
kind of make this more concrete. So like the new big technology that we're all talking about now is AI and chat GPT. It's, it's the subject of your column in the, the May issue of America. Um, so Just finished this morning. <laughs> <laughs> just under the wire. And you as a priest, you as the editor in chief of America, how are you discerning the uses of chat GPT? First thing I'd say about that is I'm in an ongoing process. I don't have an answer about this yet. And I've, as I said in the column, um, so I was trained, you know, did my undergrad in computer science, worked as a software engineer. I didn't work in AI specifically myself, but I followed the field. And the old standard joke about AI used to be it's been 10 years away for the last 40 years. <laughs> um, and ChatGPT and some of the other new tools that are coming up right now are the first time I felt like that joke has failed. Yeah. Um, and there's something distinctively new on the horizon that is a major change. Uh, I don't know entirely what to make of it yet. I I think there's tremendous potential in uh, in how ChatGPT can sort of accelerate a lot of tasks that could otherwise be complex tasks that could otherwise be somewhat rote. And ChatGPT can give us an enormous head start on some of that. I'm also very concerned about the ease with which it can do misinformation. So I started off the column I wrote this morning um, with, uh, and this was actually a, a something I learned from Zach, who did it first as a joke, but gave ChatGPT a prompt to do something in my style and was blown away, uh, not necessarily in a good way, by how close it got to mimicking my, my prose style. A couple of months ago, our colleague, Father Jim McDermott, asked ChatGPT to write Ash Wednesday homilies yeah. in in, the, in a Jesuit style. Do you see this? And as, they weren't that bad. And they weren't that bad. That's the no, thing. That, right. <laughs> I will also say, and they weren't that good. Either, yes. Right. So I would say I would give this sort of like a solid C plus. And most of the stuff, as I've been playing with ChatGPT myself, most of the stuff I get is I would say like solid C plus, sometimes B minus. Um, so it never quite sings. It's always, it's always reasonable, right? It's plausible. But the other problem with it is that it's often, even when it's completely wrong about, you know, some deep or complicated topic in theology, which is a space I know well, um, it sounds plausible in being wrong. Yeah, it, it's a very confident chatbot. Yeah. I see myself confidently wrong. I see myself reflected in it. Do you do you bit. see that as something that like priests are going to do? Like. I'd be surprised if somewhere, you know, a priest hasn't already. Yeah. I mean, well, clearly Jim McDermott yeah. did as as an experiment. But I mean, people have talked about one of the uses of ChatGPT being a way to sort of like get over the hump of writer's block to start writing by giving it a prompt and then you get three paragraphs back where you can just get going. And if that's what we're doing with it, but you're actually then praying over what it says and taking it from that, you know, C plus to something that does actually sing and speaks to your own faith. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily do it myself. I'm not, I certainly wouldn't want to do it all the time, but I don't think that's automatically a problem. I think uh, I have bigger questions around how do we know when this is happening? How important is it for us to know every instance where it happens? Yeah. I mean, people already use homily helps kind of stuff. Right. I remember- Like I don't say like when I tell a story, I'm like, oh, by the way, I got that from Google. <laughs> like- yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> As I saw on Twitter today, yeah. <laughs> what I what I think is really interesting about ChatGPT and and where I'm continuing to think about it is that what it's so one of the reasons it can mimic my style is because presumably the body of text on the America website was in the corpus of internet text on which this thing was trained. And so examples of my style are out there. Great. But what it means is that there's 
there's, and this is what I talk about in the column as well, there's a sense in which when we're talking to ChatGPT, we're talking to ourselves, right? We are talking to a model trained on the, the corpus of human knowledge and text and conversation. So this is a mediated form of engaging the broad spectrum of the human tradition. The problem is the human tradition is not all at one level, but when all that stuff is thrown into a training model, the training model tends to treat it as if it's mostly on one level. So that gives you problems about which parts of this do we trust and how. And I think it also raises questions about, is it possible, how is it possible to learn something new from this or to develop new ideas when what it is is sort of a a captured moment in time of the state of human knowledge and discourse? And then we continue to interact with it, but is it developing? Are we developing? You know, how do we how do we learn and build on a model that works that way? And I think that's just, it's a, as far as I know, a brand new question given this brand new tool. And I think it'll be a while before we have a good answer. To yeah. That. And I, I'm, it's a really fun question for me and fun to talk about. I would talk about this for hours. I have been at work for a while <laughs> yeah. now, um, but wanted to, while we have you here, wanted to make sure we talk to you about your recent feature article that you had in the April issue. That was sort of like, oh, we've been calling it around the office jokingly, your manifesto mm -hmm. as your opening, you know, solve as editor in chief. Um, the title of which is Catholicism, Authentic Communion and the Way Out of Our Polarization tra Trap. Um, and admittedly, when I first like heard the topic of it i was sort of like polarization again like we're, we're still talking about that like yes it's a problem it's bad and um you actually kind of call it out in the beginning of the essay it's like polarization is exhausting because it feels hopeless yeah um which i think is correct but um you draw on some really interesting things and describe new problems both as how it, it's affecting the country but also um the life of the church as well um so why why does polarization feel so like ingrained in where we are right now and and make me someone like me who's you know engaged in the public conversation every day like feels so just like tired and exhausted of hearing about it so what i argue in the essay is that polarization is exhausting and seems intractable because it is a breakdown in pluralism specifically so that polarization is what happens when as we attempt to live together uh even when we have profound disagreements and differences on our fundamental vision of meaning of what the good life for human beings is, uh, of of how we make basic commitments. Even when we disagree about those things as we're trying to live together uh, in a pluralistic way, polarization is what happens when that breaks down and we start to give up on it and retreat back into camps where we can sort of safely say, these people agree with me, these other people don't, and they're the problem. Um, and even more than they're the problem, I think they're the threat. And and that's really my understanding of one of the dynamics that's driving polarization and that is making polarization feel helpless. I found that easier to conceptualize in like politics. So like we used to have conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, and now everyone has ideologically sorted into their camps, and um, that's that's what we mean by polarization. What does it mean specifically in the church context? Right. So in the essay, I pull out the big intellectual guns here. Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher and sociologist who wrote this fabulous book called A Secular Age that I've referred to a bunch and has been really formative for how I look at my own, my own identity as a Catholic 
in in this age, um, but also how I look at my own ministry. And I'll get to that book eventually. It's been on my bookshelf, but it is 900 pages long. And I make a recommendation <laughs> in the essay for, for a shorter primer for it. Um, but the, honestly, the 900 pages are worth it. So I think the way this manifests in religion is that, and, and this is something Taylor helped me see, that one of the conditions of what Taylor calls our secular age, it's not just that there is an opposition to religion that is ideological in its own right. It's also that the conditions for belief have changed because we're in this pluralistic situation where we're constantly encountering people who believe differently or don't believe at all. And so everyone, believer or non-believer, is responsible for making the choice about how they frame both their own commitment to belief, but also just the way they understand the world such that belief is either um, reasonable or not reasonable, uh, such that belief becomes available to them or see continues to seem unavailable to them. And we're making those choices all the time and we're constantly encountering people who have made those choices differently. We're always aware of the other choice as a possibility that can't be closed off or restricted. Which was not always the case. Which was not always the case. This is a, a distinct development within both intellectual history, but also social history, right? This is a thing that's happened, uh, particularly within the history of Christianity. The previous state was you grew up in a village where everyone believed the same thing, and it didn't even wouldn't even occur to you that there were like alternative- It was easy to be religious by default. Yes. It is no longer easy to be religious by default. It's not just that it's no longer easier to be religious by default, it's no longer easy to be anything by default, right? No one gets a default anymore. Taylor describes this as being cross-pressured, um, that we all have to be responsible for this is how I make sense of the world and put it together and decide to engage with it. And that I think is – so it, it both drives polarization within religion because we want uh, – very often it's natural to want uh, our religious commitments to be default, rock solid, like the the rock on which we stand and on which I can tell other people they should stand as well so that it helps me be reassured that the rock itself is solid. And I think under the conditions of secularity, we have to think about that kind of solidity differently. It's not that our faith becomes less sure or or less reliable. It's that it no longer functions in quite the same way as a default. And it doesn't function in quite the same way as a default that we expect others to share. And the way we convince others to encounter it isn't by presenting it as a default. So like it's our own insecurity about our beliefs that like makes us more sure about them in, in some so, way or yeah, hold I, on to them more tightly. I think it's not our own insecurity. So it's the burden of trying to choose and account for our beliefs that is the challenge here. and. There are lots of ways that we want to try to share that burden. So I think there are very healthy and good ways to share that burden. This is what I describe in the essay as communion. I think that is ideally one of the things that communion in the church is doing. But I think there are also sort of broken ways that we try to share that burden by saying, um, here it is. Like we can shoulder it this way and other people are a threat against it. And if we're fighting against that threat, then that's one of the ways that we are circling the wagons and and knowing that we're we're safe in our own space. And I think that's the driver of religious polarization or a driver of religious polarization. Well, and it's exhausting to have to constantly reinvent your your, your self-worth and meaning and identity and it's like if I have to come up with my 
religion, my political beliefs, my sexual identity, my gender, all like, um, and even within those things, my specific beliefs when within all those things and sort of they're charged up to such a degree. And if I always have all alternative options available to me, I have to like recommit myself to every single thing all the time. It's no wonder that we're all insane and crazy and anxious all the time. Right. And what I'm what I'm not saying here is that what we need to do is just figure out how to do that recommitting constantly and be on the hamster wheel forever with it. But I think that there's a different mode of security to look for, right? And the security that we need to be looking for is not somehow I've done the work so much so that um, that it is grounded forever. Like I've dropped anchor and here I am, I'm never moving. But the security is a form of trust, a trust in God, a trust in each other, a trust in the church as it exists through history um, and not just as an ideal. And it's that kind of more mature trust that I think is the way faith actually works when it works well under the conditions of secularity. So we want to talk about a, a specific issue that can be very polarizing in both politics and the church and try to like find a way where we go from place of inse- or insecurity or circling the wagons to what you would call communion. So I feel like we should get a, like, a wheel of fortune, like wheel of contentious issues in the church or <laughs> something. We can just them. spin it and pick one. Well, this is one you've written a lot about for America, oh, so okay. abortion. So how would you describe the current state of that debate and how it reflects this exhausting polarization we're all experiencing? Uh, unsettled post-ops especially in the US. Look, I, I've said and I have written for America, I think it is a, a very good thing that Roe was overturned. Um, and I think that both because I think Roe itself was bad law, I think it led to immoral results uh, and unjust results, but also I think that Roe, it meant that we were always going to keep going back to the courts about abortion. So I had, I had hopes, I still have hopes, that with Roe gone, there is more of a chance for legislative work to actually be done that will over time reduce the temperature uh, of our debates and contentions around abortion and perhaps make it possible for people to start talking about the moral issue and not just you know the, the legal and conflictual issue and and start trying to convince each other. Now, that hope has not been borne out in this, you know, we're still in the first year post-Obs, certainly not, has not been borne out. And one of the reasons it hasn't been borne out is because there are still a number of ways in which abortion is trapped at the courts. Uh, we've seen this most recently with the, decision, the competing decisions in Texas and Washington um, over medication abortion. So I think that everyone, that most, most people who are um, really politically active on this issue are still sort of swinging for the fences, right? So people on the pro-choice side of the issue are hoping for an endgame in which um, the protections of Roe or something even stronger are legislated and you know made the case nationwide or where uh, the court is reformed in a way that turns this around completely. And I think people, many people on the pro-life side of the issue are trying for a, a number of um, legislative and judicial victories that will get abortion as restricted as possible as soon as possible. And I think that neither of those approaches is doing the hard work of there is profound, deep moral disagreement about this for good reasons, right? This is not something that is 
easily and obviously resolved just by sort of doing a moral calculus. We need to convince each other about the right way to look at this question. And nobody has succeeded in doing that work comprehensively, right? There's there's actually very little space where people have met in the middle and agreed even about how to frame the moral disagreement. Your solution to polarization in, in your essay is described as, as communion, like authentic communion, what that really looks like. What What is that vision, both as it applies to within the church and maybe to, to the country where we're not in a communion insured by God himself? Well, I, and I should also say, you know, like the communion of the church is, I believe, protected by the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, the communion of the United States is not. So uh, in a sense, we have more work to do there. But one of the shorthands I try to give for it in the article is that communion is about being bound together by something deeper than our agreements. And so what I mean in the life of the church by communion is the fact that we are we are members of the church not because we agree to a set of dogmas, beliefs, doctrines, teachings, etc. We are members of the church by our baptism. We are members of the church because God has claimed us in the church. Um, and we continue to be members of the church even when we struggle with a teaching, even when we sin, even when we are at odds with the church or at odds with each other in the church. We all continue to be members of the church, and it continues to be a good thing, part of our cooperation in God's grace, part of the way God preserves the church that we are bound together that way, that we cannot simply unbind ourselves or that we don't, that the bonds of communion don't automatically dissolve as soon as someone, you know, makes the wrong decision about a certain theological concept. And I don't think we value that enough. I, I think that when we get into disagreement, we tend to try to win the argument too quickly <laughs> rather than recognizing that underneath the disagreement and deeper than it, is something more profound. And I think if we start it, there is something more profound there. We spend a lot more effort, ideally, trying to understand each other, trying to understand why the other person who shares the same deepest identity as I do as a member of the church has come to such a different expression of it. And rather than assuming that they do so through ill will, so this I talk about this in the article as an application of something that St. Ignatius calls the presupposition. Rather than assuming that they come to it through ill will, I do a lot of work to try to figure out, is there a way that, that what they're saying could make sense, could be an expression of the truth, could be a way of seeking the good? And not because I'm necessarily therefore going to come to agree with it, but because it lets me reach them in a way that I can't reach them when we're just disagreeing and denouncing each other. There are like 15 threads I want to pull at there. But at the very least, I think what we're trying to get to a point where like our relationship or our communion is not pinned to like positions that we hold or express, exactly. right? And I, I, there's so much there in this essay that I want to encourage people to 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 read, um, but also being mindful of time, want to bring this conversation to a close. Um, so Sam, you have written on this, you've written on ChatGPT, you're going to be writing a lot more for America uh, now that you're editor-in-chief and looking forward to what you come up with. Well, thanks a lot. It's been a, a real pleasure to be here with you. But we do have one final question for you. Yes. And that is, if you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, Fictional or real, who would it be and why? So the one previous time I've been on Jesuitical, I canonized Denise Levertov, um, who's a 20th century uh, Catholic convert and poet. And 
in honor of that, I thought that today uh, I would reach a little bit farther back into history and into our own Jesuit tradition. And I might not be the first person to do this on Jesuitical, but I'm going to canonize Gerard Manley Hopkins. Awesome. And who could you briefly say who he was? And- so Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, a Jesuit, another convert to Catholicism from Anglicanism. So an Englishman who uh, spent his a lot of his ministry in Ireland, which was not necessarily a place he, he wanted to be, um, struggled with some darkness and desolation and depression uh, in his own life. But he also wrote this profoundly beautiful poetry that was, you know, like decades ahead of its time stylistically that really almost no one read during his life. It was mostly preserved and discovered after his death. And so, you know, in a way that I think would have utterly surprised him, even though he died all but unknown and thinking of himself largely as a failure. Uh, which I think is kind of a, a beautiful mark of of God's providence there. But he also, and this was something I said about Levertov as well, what I love about him is that he wrestles with God in his poetry in a way that doesn't try to come to an early resolution of these answers, but is willing to stick with God through the darkness and through the doubt and trust that God is doing something there um, even deeper than he can perceive right at this moment. All right. St. Gerard Manley Hopkins. Pray for us. Pray for us. <laughs> he is Father Sam Sawyer. You can read him at americamagazine.org. Sam, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. A real pleasure. Thanks a lot. I let, let you down And I know that I was not always around I made you feel, feel alone Spent most of your nights just sitting on your own I should have done so much more Like giving you the things you asked me for And I know I was wrong It's what I try to tell you with my son Tell you with my son all right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, what do we have this week, Ashley? So this spring, we are celebrating America Media's 114th anniversary. It's an exciting time for us all to renew our commitment to journalism that tells the stories of faith in action. Yeah, so as many people know, uh, Ashley and I, we host the show, but we work at America Media. You just heard from America's editor-in-chief. Um, and this is a time where we really want to like remind people that our mission in America is to provide the resources that you need to help make sense of events in the church and the world, and also encourage difficult but much-needed conversations. Yeah. And a tax-deductible gift of any amount can make a huge difference. And even more exciting, we have a generous donor who has agreed to match all gifts made during our campaign up to $10,000. Your impact could be doubled. Yeah. So please visit www.americamagazine.org slash donate to support America's smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news. What else do we have this week, Ashley? For those of you who support Jesuitical on Patreon, we are also going to have our bonus episode on the new Hulu documentary, The Pope Answers, coming out next Tuesday. (laughs) It's it's recorded, it's edited, it will be published on Tuesday. So you still have time to sign up if you want to make sure you get that in your feed. It's going to be happening on Tuesday, as Ashley said. And to get that, you can visit www.patreon.com slash americamedia to sign up. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, And this week I was reflecting on a... uh, chapter from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter five. Uh, It's a very exciting chapter. I don't know. (laughs) I love um, 
this part of Easter where we go through Acts in the first reading in daily mass because it really just tells the story of the church in a pretty dramatic fashion. Yeah. So so the passage I was uh, reflecting on recently, it's uh, the apostles have just been thrown in jail and an angel gets them out and then they're brought back before the Sanhedrin for trial. And they're and, like, how did you guys get here? Yeah. <laughs> and the Pharisees, they, you know, they, they've told the apostles, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And of course, the apostles are keeping or continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And so the Pharisees want to put them to death. But one Pharisee pipes up and he's like, hey. We've seen false prophets before. If you kill these guys, they're just going to become martyrs and their movement will continue. So just like let them let them go. If they're from God, then we don't want to be the ones putting them to death. And they're, if they're not from God, then they'll just peter out on their, of their own accord. Yeah, which is like a Pascal's wager of it, sorts. But it, yeah, yeah totally. pretty smart. <laughs> which can be seen as kind of like a, a in a negative sense of like hedging your bets. Like the punishment would be really bad and the reward would be infinite. So I'm just going to hedge my bets and go with God. Some would say it's a Jesuitical way of thinking in the traditional (laughs) sense. But I wanted to take it down a level from there and think about how it could be a kind of guide for discernment and on a more like day-to-day basis. Like new things come into our lives, new opportunities, new people. And we often, or I often feel this, this need to like make an immediate judgment. Like, is this good or is this bad? And Kind of the approach that this Pharisee is taking is like, you know, let it play out and see what the fruits are. Are they good fruits or bad fruits? And I think having some more patience in our own discernment uh, could actually be really helpful. And uh, <laughs> you use this in a scripture reflection. I did. Week. Yes. And one thing I drew on was this advice that my friend once gave me. <laughs> yes, I was that friend. Um, I've always had this, you know, as a married man, I have a lot of opinions on dating. <laughs> And I always have felt like modern approaches to dating have been a little off because there's so much emphasis on like one single date, whether you match with someone on an app or anything, there's kind of one meetup and it either works or it doesn't uh, and people move on. And I've always thought like you should at least go on three dates with someone just to, because there's so much pressure and social things going on. Like you could have had a bad day, woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You could have had a, a bad meeting at work or some there's some reason where you might not be your total complete self on this one single date and so i feel like we generally should be more gracious with people and give them a few chances before we you know make a judgment call in most cases yeah (laughs) because clearly i can already hear people listening to this being like you dumb idiot boy (laughs) you have no idea what you're talking about uh i didn't you know if yeah obviously feeling safe or things are creepy or uh, yeah that doesn't these are not what the situations i'm talking about Noted. Uh, but I, I, I liked that advice. And I also think there's a way it could apply to the spiritual life in that, you know, there, there are so many resources in our church and maybe we could be more gracious with those too. Like give them a few chances. Like you're skeptical of more traditional liturgies. Go to go to three Latin masses and see what you think. And if nothing comes of it, then you've, you know, wasted, but not really wasted, but you, you know, that's three hours or four hours of your life that you spent in a liturgy that was less than perfect, which could describe all of our liturgies. Yeah, yeah. Or, or types of prayer like Lectio Divino or the Rosary. Just like give it a couple more tries and see if you can find where God is working there. So listeners, uh, you know, you don't have to do this with everything, but maybe pick one one type of prayer or liturgy or volunteer experience and and give it more than one try and, and see what you find As long there. as you're not asking me to do the 7.30 a.m. Mass on Sunday, <laughs> um, I have tried waking up early on Sunday enough times that I know it is not for me. (laughs) All right, I'll get us out of here. 
Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.